Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we are actually going over pretty much all of this chapter. And the reason being is that, you know, on Sunday mornings, we pretty well stay in the New Testament. Here on Wednesday nights, we've been really uh, sticking to the Old Testament. We've been going over a number of different books. We went through Daniel, we went through Ezra and Nehemiah, we went through Haggai, we went through portions of Zechariah. Uh, we've seen a number of different uh, acts of, of God, mighty acts of God, and how God had compassion on His people and grace on them, and the time in which they would leave Babylon, and what would happen thereafter, leading up to the time of our Lord Jesus. But we need to go back a little further, because many things that are found within the New Testament are grounded in some of the earlier law books uh, that sometimes we don't really dig into. Uh, We need to understand uh, so many different uh, things that are contained in the Old Testament in order to fully appreciate a lot of the things that we find within the New Testament, especially when it comes to biblical figures. When it comes to Abraham, for example, Abraham is used as as a, a symbol of faith a number of times by the Apostle Paul as well as James. But what did he do? What things did he do that, that laid the example for us to follow? And why is it that we were regarded as children of Abraham when we believe in Christ and all of this? So there's a number of things to look at that the New Testament brings out for us that we got to go back to the old. We need to see what was going on then. And one of the first things that we need to come to understand from the very get-go is really to be reminded of why are we even talking about a Savior? Why is it necessary that Christ came? What happened? What led all of this into into, uh, disarray in the world? Why are we we talking about condemnation? Uh, There's all of that that is grounded here in chapter 3. Why was it necessary that Christ come? What is the state of humanity? What set all this into motion? It's all grounded here in chapter 3. Going over chapter 3 really brings out the fullness of what we're reading in the New Testament. And here in chapter 3, it is vitally important anyway, because this is going to be the first announcement of the gospel. In this chapter, which then sets everything else into play. Everything that we'll read from here on out in the Old Testament is grounded in this promise of God. This particular situation that is occurring here in chapter 3 and the promise of God that is given here. All of that sets the tone for the rest of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, leading into the New We need to go back and really appreciate a lot of these passages here and and appreciate a lot of the types and shadows that are in the Old Testament that all point to the Lord Jesus. So that when we get to the New Testament again, and we're reading in these amazing passages where Jesus would say things like, you know, you're going to see greater things than these. You're going to see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What does he mean? That's a reference back in the Old Testament. What's he talking about? 
Again, there's so many things that are that are laid that laid the foundation in the Old Testament that we may not know, maybe we don't think about, but we need to go back and we need to really survey a lot of these things. A lot of these amazing passages, a lot of these uh, biblical figures. And we're going to start tonight in chapter 3. Chapter 3 is the the very chapter in which we come to understand why was it necessary that Christ come? Why is it that, that we all need a Savior? What's well, found here in chapter 3? Man rebelled against our Lord in this chapter. And the time in which everything was perfect is when man, by the temptation of the serpent... Man rebels and plunges all humanity into sin and condemnation. This chapter tells us why we need Christ. Why it is vitally important that we, that we uh, preach the gospel to others in view of the condemnation that will come upon them because of what happens here. So tonight we're going to go over chapter 3. And if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And we'll read the whole chapter. Genesis chapter 3. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. Let us give our attention to this passage. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman... Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat, eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man, and he said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity... Between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, 
He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man, in, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we again come into your presence and ask that you would guide our thoughts and that you would take this passage of Scripture and give us greater understanding, adhere it to our hearts, cause us to know you even more because of this particular passage and cause us to appreciate your salvation even more because of this text. Father, use this to change us, to mold us, to shape us, to be all that you desire us to be in Christ. We love you because as we read here, you loved us first. And how we appreciate your salvation, Father, help us even more to appreciate it. For it's in Christ's name we pray and all of God's children said, amen. Please be seated. Some familiar things that we have read before are found in this passage. We have a very interesting scene. In Genesis Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, we read of the creation of all things. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then He began to create every other thing. He created the plants and the animals. He created the stars. He created uh, the great lights of the sun and the moon and, and the fish in the sea, the birds, all this. He created it all. He saw that it was good, as the passages tell us. By His very power, He speaks, and the earth brings forth the animals. By His very power, He speaks, and the seas bring forth all the fish after their kind. By His very power, all He had to do was speak. But one of the most amazing things as you go through the creation account is the creation of man. Because in the creation of man, He doesn't speak as He does with the rest of creation. He doesn't say, let the earth bring forth man. He says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. 
And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the earth, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living being. Man was created special out of all the creation that God had created beforehand. Man was the pinnacle of God's creation. Because only man is created in the image of God according to his likeness. And just as a footnote, that doesn't mean that God looks like us, or that we look like God, rather. God doesn't have arms, and He doesn't have legs, He doesn't have eyes, He doesn't have ears. These are ways that the Scriptures describe for us God, that we can understand Him uh, to the best of our ability. But God is Spirit, as our Lord Jesus tells us. But what it does mean, that we are created in the image of God according to His likeness, and that's the key to understanding this, is that there are certain attributes of God or certain characteristics of God that are found within man. For instance, God is good, God is holy, God is kind, God is love, God has knowledge, God has wisdom, and these particular attributes of God are found in man as well. Man is declared to be holy in Christ. Man can be good, man can be kind, man can love, man can have wisdom, man can have knowledge, uh, various things like that. There are certain attributes of God that are reflected in man, which makes this statement what it is, that man is created in the image of God according to his likeness. The moral image of God is found within man. In the beginning when God had created man, he created man upright. He created man perfect. He created him righteous. There was no sin. There was no disobedience. There was no wickedness. There was no evil. None of these things existed because when God had created it all, He said it was good. He rests on the seventh day after He created all things. God had created a paradise for man. Man wanted for nothing. It was a delight, most likely for Adam, to cultivate the garden because everything was being supplied for him. Because God had created it that way, that man would find himself in paradise but something happens in chapter 3 that mars all of that that mars the image of god in which we were created that sends death into the world sin into the world that sends judgment against man and it all begins here with the serpent of old who is called the devil Eve is created for Adam. They are commanded by the Lord to multiply, fill the earth, subdue the earth, have dominion over everything. Again, this was paradise that God had created, and they lacked nothing. They had everything, and everything was being supplied by the Lord God. Now we read <clears throat> of the, the first temptation. We read of the serpent. Moses, having written Genesis, Moses tells us that the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Now, he was more crafty, he was more clever, he was more subtle. Some of your translations would say different things. It's very interesting that even Jesus uses the serpents 
as an example of being wise. Remember when he says that, I send you out into the world as sheep among the wolves, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Maybe that was one of the reasons why, because the, the snake or the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field, why it was that Satan had chose this particular animal in order to speak to Eve. He approaches Eve, perhaps it seems as if perhaps she is alone. And he begins to simply ask her questions. This is a direct attack on the very character of God, but it doesn't come outright. Again, he's very subtle. He's very crafty. He's very clever. The only thing that he begins to do is to start putting doubts within the mind of Eve. Begins to put those doubts about his goodness and his kindness towards them, his love for them, because perhaps maybe the Lord is, is holding something back. He's not allowing them to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Maybe because God is a cosmic killjoy who doesn't want to have his creation to obtain the greatest pleasure perhaps or whatever now imagine this god plants all these trees in the garden and they may freely eat that's one thing that eve doesn't put in there is that we may not only eat but we may freely eat of all of these trees the very one that we can't is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil which is put in the middle of the garden this is the only one and actually when you go back and you study systematic theology, and you study the, the various covenants that are in the Scripture, one of the covenants that you find theologians speaking of is the covenant, what's called the covenant of works. Adam and Eve only had one rule when they were created. Just one. One law, if you will. You can eat of any tree you want. Just not that one. That's it. Only rule they had to obey. And Satan, as he approaches Eve, that's the very thing that he focuses on. That's the very thing he's going to plant, plant doubts in her mind. He asked her, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Well, obviously that's not what God said. God didn't say that at all. They can eat of every tree of the garden. Just not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the only one. He says back in chapter 1, then, the, then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky and everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. He, he created it all, all these trees, that they may freely eat, that they may freely take from. And he begins to plant these doubts in her mind. Did he really say this? Did God really say? And what does the woman say, of course? The woman says to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. Not eat freely, as God had said. You may eat freely, he says. He says in verse 16 of chapter 2, 
the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. That's what the command was. So Eve's response is not even true to what God had said to begin with. We may freely eat of these things because that would, that would demonstrate even more of God's blessing to them and God's kindness to them. You can eat as much as you want. You can eat freely. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it, which God didn't say, or you will die. So there's already perhaps some maybe bitterness that's building up in Eve. Yes, he said that we can eat of any tree, but we can't eat of that one. We can't even touch it. God didn't say that. You almost see the, the, the beginnings of, of the working within her heart already starting. Of that, that rebellious attitude. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. He's contradicting exactly uh, what the Lord had said would happen. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here's the way Satan approaches this. He's crafty, he's clever, he's subtle. The only thing he begins to do is to ask questions to the woman. Did he really say that? Well, you're not going to die. That's nonsense. Here's what's happening is that God is holding you back from your greatest potential. Because God knows in the day that you eat of this, you're going to be like him. You're going to know good and evil. He doesn't want to be equals with you. He doesn't want you to have that great of a blessing. So he has he told you, you can't have a, this tree. This tree is going to bring you even greater pleasure than any other tree. That's all he had to do. There was no outright attack that occurred. Satan doesn't approach the woman as many atheists do Christians today. Again, he's very crafty. He's very clever. He's the father of evil. He's the father of lies. He planted those doubts within her mind. And as she is speaking of the tree, she's talking about to the serpent, the tree that's in the middle of the garden, which seems to imply that she's not in the middle of the garden, but she's telling him about the tree that is in the middle of the garden. So after having this conversation and having these doubts put in her mind, it seems as if she goes directly to that tree. That's where she's going now. Well, the serpent said that. Well, I'm going to go check out the tree. I'm going to go see what it is that God is holding us back from. God is withholding an even greater blessing, an even greater pleasure, an even greater knowledge. He's holding me back. He's holding us back. So here's what happens. When the woman saw... That the tree was good for food. You know, John tells us that we're tempted in three particular areas. The lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And you see all three right here. The woman saw that the tree was good for food. She looks at the tree. She sees, she sees the fruit that's on it. Mm, this looks delicious. I'm craving it now. And then, 
Not only does she perhaps have that feeling, that it's a delight to her eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, then she's coveting that knowledge that would be, that would be gained as a result of taking of this fruit. Not only because it's good for food, but guess what's going to happen when I eat it? I'm going to have a greater know-how. I'm going to be on, on equal standing with God. And actually, that's the word that's being used there, is for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. It's actually the word Elohim, which you could translate gods. And actually, it's often translated that way within the Old Testament too. That your eyes will be open and you will be like gods. Knowing good and evil. So after she sees it, it's delicious, it's delightful, and then the fact of what it's going to accomplish, then she acts in open rebellion, takes of the fruit, which God commanded not to eat from, and she begins to eat. Then at this point, it seems as if Adam is close by. He could have been there the whole time. We don't know. But she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, there's a couple different theories just to say in passing. We don't want to overstep what the Scripture don't tell us. Why it was that Adam desired to engage with his wife in this act of rebellion rather than remaining allied to the Lord God. Some would say, well, he loved Eve that much that he didn't want her to be in condemnation by herself. I think that's fanciful ideas. It has no grounding within the Scripture. We're not really told. The only thing we are told is that she ate, she gives to him, and he eats also. Now, he eats in in an even greater defiant act of rebellion. She was deceived by the serpent. She had the conversation with the serpent and was led into this by this great temptation. Adam just takes and begins to eat in open defiance of what the Lord God had said, because he obviously knew what the Lord had said as well. This is what's referred to as the fall. The fall of man, the the fall from from the, the grace of God, if you will, as far as being the object of His grace, because now justice is going to be served. Now there's going to be a need for a Redeemer. After they eat, after they eat, They do have this greater understanding of their guilt. The eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Nobody had to tell them this. So in what had occurred, what Satan said was partially true. That they did know good and evil. Because they only saw the good in light of their sin and what they had just committed. Their conscience bore witness to the fact that they had just committed an act of defiance against the Lord God. Nobody had to tell them. Their conscience bore witness. And now they are in a state of knowing good and evil again. But they can only know good from the standpoint of now their sin and their evil and their rebellion. 
And so they sew fig leaves together. They're trying to cover up their nakedness. Trying to hide their sin, if you will, as some theologians would look at it. But then here's what happens. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, a lot of folks would think that this is a theophany in the sense of God manifesting himself as a man. And so in the instance that this happens within the Old Testament, it's always referred to as a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, the Lord manifesting himself, the second person of the Trinity manifesting himself in human form. He comes walking in the cool of the day. Perhaps this is something that the Lord had done in his fellowship with man beforehand. And in light of the presence of God, they hide themselves. They knew they were naked. And then the fact of them sewing fig leaves together in order to cover their nakedness doesn't seem to suffice. And so instead of standing there as they normally would, perhaps when the Lord comes in the cool of the day, maybe they look down, this isn't sufficient. This isn't good enough. And what do they do? They go hide themselves. And the Lord God calls to the man, where are you? Not as if he didn't know where they were, but he's eliciting a response from his creation, from those that he had fellowship with. Then Adam speaks up. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Anytime that sinful man is in the presence of God, there's a, a genuine fear that is brought up within the heart of man. A fear that hadn't been there before because man had perfect fellowship with God. We don't know how long they were in the garden before this happened in the time of their creation until the time of the fall. It could have been days, could have been weeks. Uh, I think Jewish tradition actually said seven years. But again, we're not told within Scripture, so we can't really overstep and say, well, it could have been this, it could have been that. But whatever experience that they had beforehand in the presence of God, it was changed in this open act of defiance. Now they have fear that is gripped into their hearts to hide themselves from God. Which brings to light exactly what Paul says in, in Romans chapter 3, that there are none who seek after God. There are none who are fallen and sinful and evil and wicked who seek after God. And you see the ones who initially had perfect fellowship with Him doing that very thing, running and hiding from the presence of Him who sees all. The Lord said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you? Not to eat. It wasn't as if Adam and Eve were still in their state of righteousness. And the serpent comes along and says, You know y'all are naked? What's that? No. They knew. They knew because they had defied the living God. And that's exactly what God is bringing out of them. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Both of them are putting the responsibility on somebody else. Perhaps the man thinks he's absolved because 
It was her. The Lord turns his attention to her. Not as if, and don't, don't misunderstand that. That's not as if the Lord was, was like, okay, Adam, let me talk to her now. No. The Lord is going to hold him directly responsible for exactly what he did. And all the human race and their plunge, being plunged into sin and death is going to be held right against him. So his answer does not suffice. He moves over to Eve. What is this that you've done? And the woman said, after receiving this from Adam, the serpent you gave me, or excuse me, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. And now the Lord does direct his attention to the one who started it all. And he's going to put the curse on him first. And then he'll get back to Adam and Eve. Now, this is just my opinion. And again, we don't want to go over what the scriptures tell us. And so just understand that this is just my opinion. Because the scriptures do not disclose this. My personal opinion is not only do you have the fall of Adam and Eve that happened here, but you have the fall of Satan that happens here too. There was no judgment given to him until this. So it's as, it's as if Satan was put in the garden, and then in the, in the very act of Satan causing them to sin, he himself is in open rebellion and sinning against the Lord. Because all the judgments are coming right here together. Satan didn't fall years prior and then the Lord judge him then, this is what's going to happen. It's in this moment that it seems as if he rebels, and in his rebellion, he causes their rebellion, and judgment's given across the board. So this is the greater curse that's coming upon Satan himself because of what he has done. Lord God said, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle. More than every beast of the field on your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. This is referring to you cr the crawling on his belly and eating the dust is, is a reference to his debased condition now. But here's the most amazing thing of it all. Even though he's still speaking to Satan, even though Satan absolutely deserves judgment and he will not find any grace of God, Yet in the very act of judgment, he is giving grace to the woman and the man. This is one of the most beautiful pictures of God's grace, in my opinion, that we find within Scripture. As he is pronouncing judgment upon the serpent, he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. Now, What's implied in that? He's saying to the serpent, I'm going to put enmity between you two. Whereas before there was an alliance. That's the implication. There was an alliance here. And the Lord God says, I'm going to put enmity between you two. As one theologian had said, it's as if, Eve had allied herself with Satan and deserving of judgment, and yet the Lord says to Satan, yes, she allied herself with you against me, but you can't have her. 
you can't have her because I'm going to redeem her. And the one in whom I'm going to bring from her seed, he's going to crush your head. He's going to put the final blow against you. You may bruise his heel in the sense of causing some pain, but the final death blow is going to be because of this one who comes from the seed of the woman. That in itself is an act of God's grace. She's mine, and you can't have her. And so instead of allowing you to have this alliance together, I'm going to put enmity between you. I'm going to make you enemies, not friends. He's going to crush your head. He shall bruise you on the head. Or crush. Some of your translations would say, shall bruise him on the heel. This is the first announcement of the gospel. This is the first announcement of a redeemer from the very beginning. And it's also the first uh, indication of how the rest of human history is going to go. Not only do you have uh, one who's coming from her seed that's going to crush the head of the serpent, which is Christ Jesus himself, pointing to Christ, but you also have the indication of how the rest of human history is going to go. You're going to have the woman's seed, and you're going to have the Satan's seed. Many theologians would go back to this. From the very inception of everything, you're going to have the church, and you're going to have the world constantly at enmity with each other. And you see that. You see that with, with their kids, Cain and Abel. The enmity that's between the two. You see that as it moves on into history. The enmity between God's people and the rest of the world as it is to this very day. But here is one of the greatest acts of God's grace. And the greatest announcement in the law books themselves. The announcement of the Redeemer. It was necessary that Christ come into the world because of this great act of defiance that man had committed. Now we look at that and we say, well, all they did was just eat of a tree. That's all they did. They just ate some fruit. Why? Do we, do we see you know, these things being played out because of, of them just eating fruit from a tree? Because it goes back to this. The song that we just sang a moment ago, that God is holy, holy, holy. This is why. Because God is holy. Any act of rebellion against Him, His holiness cries out for justice. Because He is righteous. He's altogether righteous. And what is right is to punish sin. Even what we would consider to be the smallest of sins. It is necessary and absolutely right for God to punish sin. And since he has to punish sin, and since what they deserved was death, not just physical death, but eternal death, because they defied the holy God, instead of giving them that, he says, I'm going to have grace upon you in the announcing of the Savior coming. Now here's an amazing thing to think of as well. All of these things didn't just happen in the sense of God comes to walk in the cool of the day. Where's Adam and Eve? Where'd they go? What did you guys do? And then have to reason within himself. 
What are we going to do? I created this paradise for them. I gave them everything that they needed. And now they've done this. What am I to do? That was never in the mind of God. Because the scriptures tell us that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. The plan was already in place. It was necessary that these very things happen in order that God could show the greatest act of love in sending the Lord Jesus to die for sinners. Apart from these things happening, apart from sin entering the world and evil entering to the world, you would not have an idea remotely of what the greatest act of love is, what love is, what goodness is, because, because you would have nothing to compare it to. But because God had decreed for these things to happen, and His decrees always come to pass, Satan was permitted to do what he did, send man into rebellion by his temptation, that the second person of the Trinity would come and die for us while we were yet helpless, while we were still sinners, to demonstrate his great love. Man did not go unpunished, of course. To the woman, he says, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and pain you will bring forth children. You, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. What this doesn't mean is that there was a time before the fall in which Adam and Eve had children. It's not what this means. People look at that and I will greatly multiply meaning that it had to be something before, and now it's going to be multiplied from what it was beforehand. That's not what it means. And some people would say that. They would say that Adam and Eve had children before the fall. Some do believe that. But then you come into another problem. Because the Scripture tells us in Romans 5, verse 12, that all mankind, because of Adam, is plunged into sin. If there were children that were born of Adam and Eve before the fall, yet there would still be people who could be born perfect and born fully righteous because they didn't sin. And that's not at all what the scriptures tell us. All mankind is plunged into sin and death. But what this word does mean is that he would cause to be great her pain. That's all it means. He would cause her to experience serious pain in childbirth. That was a ramification of what had come upon the woman was that pain. The husband ruling over her. And don't misunderstand that either because the scripture expresses to us the genuineness and the love that should be within a marriage of that complimentary love, the woman never being inferior to the man at all, none of that. But to the man, he would have to labor every day for food to care for his family, whereas it was provided for him before, not anymore. Cursed is the ground because of you, and toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because you were taken, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. 
These are the consequences of their rebellion, even though they had grace come upon them. The consequences were still there. And again, the greatest act of judgment would come upon Satan himself, which was given first. But even in all of these things that were taking place, God still had grace upon them. Grace in sending the Redeemer, and even even the, the gracious act of having children... I mean, the the blessing is still there. I mean, look at verse 20. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. That's that's, that's, That's a pronouncement of blessing. That's a blessing for her. Even in judgment, there was mercy. Even in judgment, there was still blessing. And instead of the little fig leaves that they had worn for themselves, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. The Lord was the first one to kill an animal to demonstrate this is the cause of what you have done because this particular thing, this act that God has done is also going to be what plays out throughout the rest of the Old Testament. The sacrificing of another in place of another. Or the sacrificing of one in place of another. This is the prelude. This is, this is the foundation for all that's getting ready to happen now. And, the God, and that God protected him too is evident here. That because the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim. And the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, because of the rivers that flowed out from Eden, and only the cherubim stationed at the east gate, I think it was Doug Wilson, a theologian Doug Wilson, that had really brought this out, that Eden was probably situated to where you had a cliff on all three sides, up on a mountain where the rivers would flow from. And it was only necessary to put a cherubim in one area that you could come in, which was the east gate. And he did this. He, he expelled them from the garden for the very reason that they would not take of the tree of life. Because what is understood is that if they had taken of the tree of life, taken the fruit of the tree of life, that they would have been confirmed in their sinfulness and then would have remained in that state of fallenness. So in order to, to keep them from doing this, God's grace still there. He expels them from the garden and expels them from even being able to reach the tree of life. Another act of God's graciousness. Another act of His kindness. And He stations the cherubim there with the flaming sword, turn, which turns in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. That was an act of God's graciousness, of God's goodness. Again, from the very beginning, you see God's grace here. You see God's goodness towards man, even in light of their open rebellion. Now, here's what comes about with this. We see what's happening with Adam and Eve. You see that they had everything perfect. They were in paradise. And then as a result of a temptation from Satan himself, they were plunged into open rebellion against the Lord. And then you see the Lord's graciousness towards them. 
Now, what does this do then for all their posterity? It sends all of their descendants into sin and death as well. There are none who are now going to be born without sin. Because Adam is our federal head. He sinned. He represented the entire human realm or the, in the human, or humanity as a whole. And now his sin is imputed to all of us. And we are born sinners. Even before we commit our first personal sins, we are already sinners because of our federal head imputing his unrighteousness to us. His sin, his open rebellion against the Lord. And so now, because of their act of rebellion, all mankind is in open rebellion. It's passed on, it's hereditary, if you will, in that sense. There are none who are born innocent. There are none who are born pure. All are born under the judgment of God. Because all are sinners missing the mark, being in open rebellion, sinning against the holy God. This is what caused this condition. The image of God in which we were created is now marred. Because man is now inclined to wickedness. He's inclined to evil. He loves darkness rather than light because his deeds are evil. All of this language that's said about man and him delighting in darkness. Inclined towards darkness. Unable to submit himself to the law of God because he's not even able to do it now. That's why when the Spirit of God causes us to be born again, that's why the, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4 that you're being recreated in righteousness and holiness of truth. The image of God is now being restored because of the Spirit of God causing us to be born again. And that only occurred because the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Redeemer foretold in Genesis 3.15, had come to give His life and to impute His righteousness to those who had unrighteousness imputed to them to begin with. That's why he's the last Adam, because he does what the first Adam couldn't do. And by his life, the many will be saved. And the many will be made righteous. And you see, because of this particular act, you see the, the mission of the Lord Jesus. And the mission of the gospel. It's not just mankind that is being reconciled to the Lord, but it's all creation being reconciled back to the Lord. Paul says in, in Colossians 1 that he's reconciling all things to himself through the blood of his cross. Creation itself is groaning, waiting for its redemption. But because of their sin and their defiance against the Lord, thorns and thistles have come up. Blood has been spilt on the earth as a result of man's wickedness and sin and murder. And creation is groaning, waiting for its redemption, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8. So that when the Lord Jesus does come and the Lord Jesus sets all things right, that the earth will receive its redemption just as the people of God receive their redemption. And that's why in the book of Revelation you see the things that are in Eden amplified in the new heavens and the new earth because there's even a, an even greater act of God's blessing and, and kindness and, and goodness seen in the new heavens and the new earth that was ever even remotely there in Eden. Because He's reconciling all things back to Himself. He is ruling and He is reigning until He puts His enemies under His feet. And the last enemy to be defeated is death. 
as he says in 1 Corinthians 15, and all things will be put back right. But we can't understand that fully until we understand what's going on in chapter 3. To appreciate all of these things. The last Adam accomplished what the first Adam couldn't. Because of the first Adam, we have unrighteousness imputed to us. But through the last Adam, we have the perfect righteousness of the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus, imputed to us. Because the first Adam plunged us into darkness and marred the image of God by this last Adam. Through the Spirit of God working, the image of God is now being restored. Because of the first Adam, you had the ground being cursed and thorns and thistles springing up. But because of the last Adam, the earth will be redeemed, purged into an even greater paradise than what was before. So as you see all of this moving in the New Testament, you're seeing the very mission of the Lord Jesus restoring what had been lost. Not just with man, not just with the fellowship, which is the pinnacle, absolutely, but with all creation itself. Because that's what was lost in chapter 3 of Genesis. The Lord Jesus, the announcement here, He absolutely accomplished exactly what it, was, what it said. He rendered Satan powerless by the work that he accomplished on the cross. The fear of death that was once there is now gone because of Christ Jesus so that you don't fear death any longer because Christ has died for you. Christ has redeemed you. Christ has imputed His righteousness to you and now you're justified in the sight of God and now you have an even, you have an even greater relationship with the Lord Jesus, with God Himself than what Adam and Eve did in the beginning. In the beginning in which they were created, they couldn't have understood the love of God as you have the privilege of knowing because they didn't have nothing to compare it to. They wouldn't have understood the goodness of God as you do because they wouldn't have anything to compare it to. But though we look at life now and we say how things are very hard and difficult and all of that, we have received the greatest blessings in Christ Jesus that even Adam and Eve wasn't able to experience when they were first created. We are very blessed, for sure. And our mission should be the very thing that is the mission of our Lord Jesus. Spread the gospel because of these, this reason here. We know why we spread the gospel, because all mankind is in sin and, and, and under the judgment of God. We know the things that are coming that God has created for all of His people. So we live in view of those things. We preach the gospel. We declare the gospel. We stand in awe of our great God who is reconciling all things to Himself and look forward to that great blessed hope that is to come at the return of our Lord Jesus. So I pray that as we work our way through many of these Old Testament passages, that it will bring uh, to light even, even greater what we find in the New Testament, that we would appreciate our salvation even more. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank you for this portion of your word. And Father, I pray that indeed the Lord, uh, the Spirit of God, 
that he would adhere it to our hearts and uh, give us such a, an even greater appreciation for what Christ has accomplished and a greater adoration for him. We praise him even more for his great work that he is accomplishing in this world and that he accomplished personally in the lives of all of his people. Father, bless us with your word. May we long to see the majesty of our Lord through the pages of Scripture. We love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for your attention. You are dismissed.